It's uh, it's good to be here at Capital City on a Sunday morning. I've uh, it's it's funny in the city of Lansing. I, I love the way that God um is continuing to bring His people together like a family. And there are, there are a lot of churches that um that I've never actually been to, but I I know a number of people at or have done things with through like the Fire by Night gatherings or I Love My City or things like that. Where there there are churches like Capital City that whenever I hear about it or drive by, I'm like. Those are like that's like family right there. Like every time I drive by, I feel like I have a connection, and so it's fun to actually get to be here and see you guys this morning. Um, I'm also just really honored too that um, that Kevin would invite me to come and come and speak to you guys. So thanks for thanks for letting me do this. Um, all right, so uh, I'll just I'll just warn you right now that I'm gonna what I'm gonna talk about. There's three different passages I'm gonna talk about, and in the last kind of five or so months, I've I've really studied these a lot for the first time. Um, and I've, I did an hour teaching on each one of them, so I'm going to try and cram three-hour teachings into uh, whatever amount of time I have. So I'm just going to talk really fast. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> um, but there is, there is going to be a lot, so um, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to jump into that in just a minute. But I want to give you a chance to mentally prepare yourself, kind of strap in, get ready. There's going to be a lot that we're going to go through. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's going to happen in just a second. Um, so just a little bit about me. Um, Kevin, Kevin told you a little bit. Um, uh, my name is Justin. Um, I get to direct the House of Prayer at East Lansing. I think I have the best job in the world. Um, and uh, really probably, there, there are a lot of things I could tell you um, about myself, but the thing that I think is probably most important is uh, my life vision is that I want to be a friend of Jesus. That's that's what I want more than anything else. I remember in uh, 2013 having this moment. I was in grad school, and um, uh, I, I went to school for 10 years, college for 10 years, and then they let me out after 10 years. And uh, <laughs> and, and I remember thinking at, at this one point, I'm like, you know, I've been doing this for so long. I've been, you know, just kind of pouring my life out, trying to get good grades, trying to be successful, trying to trying to make it. And I remember having this thought, and I was like, God, I. The, the thing that I want to do with my life, I don't really, I don't really want to be a teacher, which is what I was going to school for. I like teaching, but I was like, I don't really want to be a teacher. That's not what I want to give myself for. I also don't really want to be in full-time ministry. That doesn't sound any good either. I was like, the thing that I desire more than anything else is I want to know you. I want to be your friend. That's, that, the, that's what I want to spend my early mornings and my late nights on. I've spent them on lots of other things, but Jesus, that's really what I want ultimately. And you, and you can do that in any context. Your vocation doesn't really make a difference in that. But I was like, God, that's, that's really what I want my life to be set on. That's, that's where I want to be focused. And, um, and so, yeah, I feel like that's probably the most important thing to, to share about myself. Um, and and that's not just because that sounds sounds like a good good spiritual kind of thing. Really, that's that's where my heart is at, and I don't always know how to walk that out. But um, but that's really what what my desire is above everything else. And um, and so the the ministry that I get to work with, that I get to direct, the House of Prayer at East Lansing. I'll give you our little spiel. We say that we are a family of friends and followers of Jesus who stand with Him in the place of prayer, go with Him into the great harvest, and make disciples of all nations. And that we are putting his glory on display through extravagant night and day worship and prayer and loving acts of kindness, compassion, and justice. Um, so that's kind of kind of who we are, what we do. So basically, we want to be a, a, a community, a family of people who are who are the thing that brings us together is that we are all friends and followers of Jesus, and that the things that we do together is we pray, we go, and we make disciples. And that's kind of the the meat and potatoes of who we are and what we do. 
And uh, the, the way we came about, I'll just give you the real quick story. Um, there were two different movements. Uh, one of them was called IHOP Lansing. It started about 16, 17 years ago with a guy named Dan Goucher and some other people. And uh, they were inspired by the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri. And so they started having weekly prayer meetings to worship and pray um, just because they're like, Jesus is worthy. And we, we ultimately want to see God raise up night and day worship and prayer in the city of Lansing. And so they've been going every week for the last 16, 17 years. Um, so that was one movement. And then the other one um, is called the Furnace Prayer Movement, which my, my friend and mentor Jesse Still started about 10 years ago. Um, and that was a movement on Michigan State University's campus calling people together to pray for revival. Um, so any, anyone and everyone who would come, anyone who had a heart for Michigan State University, um, and even those who didn't, but you could convince to come to the prayer meeting, you know, come, come together so we can pray for revival at Michigan State University. Um, and then about six years ago, uh, these two movements kind of more or less merged together, and we've been, we've been working together um, in what, what is called the House of Prayer at East Lansing was born. And um, we've also had a couple of churches join in with us as well. Mount Hope Church partners with us. Um, Spirit of Christ Church partners with us. And then there are a bunch of other individuals and churches that partner as well. But those are the, the main people that help us do what we do. Um, so we've, we've been around as the House of Prairie East Lansing for um, between three and six years, depending on how you count it exactly. Um, and then, but, but this is actually part of kind of a bigger thing that God is doing in the world. Um, so back in the 80s, um, and I don't know how they figured this out exactly, but, or, or even who they is for that matter, but these are, <laughs> these are statistics that are true. Um, in, the, in the world, there were about 25 places on planet Earth that, that people were able to identify where there was uh, 24-7 prayer happening, whether that be prayer, 24-7 prayer happening in one place or like a prayer chain that like different churches and people in a region were you know, taking, taking shifts or whatever. There were about 25 places in the world where this was happening. Um, in the 80s, which, which you know, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, at present, there are upwards of 10,000 in the world, places where there's unceasing prayer happening. And that's, and that's just the places that are unceasing. Like, like us here in East Lansing, we, we wouldn't be on that list. We're not going around the clock yet. We will be in the future, but we're not yet. So we wouldn't even be on that list. So beyond those, 10, those upwards of 10,000, there's, I don't know how many more, but I, from from the little knowledge that I have, there are you know probably ten twenty houses of prayer for every one that's going around the clock. So we're, there's probably in the neighborhood of twenty, maybe thirty thousand uh, places in the world that uh, that that are that are seeking to raise up worship and prayer and, and and really kind of answering that call. And so this is something that that God has kind of divinely done all over the world. There isn't some person or organization who started this like there. There's, there's a few people who have spearheaded things in different areas, like uh, Mike Bickle with the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. Um, they've done a lot, but they didn't, they didn't go around and like plant other houses of prayer. They've planted a couple, but most of them um, started totally independent of them. And there's a guy named Pete Grieg in Europe who's planted a lot elsewhere in the world. Um, but same thing, that most of these houses of prayer that God has raised up have been totally independent of one another. And they'll find out about each other and be like, what, you're doing this too? That's crazy. Wow, we should be friends. And so th- this is a thing that God is kind of divinely doing all over the world. Um, and so what I want to talk to you guys a little bit about today is kind of this thing that God is doing and then sharing a little bit of the, you know, biblically, where is this coming from? Like there are different moments um, in the Bible, especially like in the New Testament, where, where something would happen and they'd be like, oh my gosh, 
This is that thing that the, the prophets talked about, you know, like 700 years ago. When they, they you know, wrote this thing down, it's happening. This is what it is. That's so cool. And so, so I'm going to do a little bit of that today, of, of looking at some of the things that were prophesied a long, long time ago, that we're beginning to see those things come to pass in the world, which is really exciting. Um, and then to kind of invite you guys to be a part of it. And so this, this stuff that I'm going to talk about, I, I want to encourage you, it's not... Um, it's not just like a, a house of prayer thing or just a, a certain segment of Christianity. So I, like when, when uh, someone comes to talk about marriage, all the single people in the room are like, well, I'm going to check out. Like there's nothing here for me. Or if there's someone talking about singleness, all the married people in the room are like, well, I might as well not be here today because I'm not single and I don't plan to be again. And so, <laughs> you know what I mean? We can kind of check out sometimes. I want to encourage you, this is for you. If you are breathing and you know Jesus, this is for you, Okay. So, so uh, just stay with me here. And ultimately, what, uh, what I'm going to be talking about is, is so much bigger than just a prayer movement or something like that. Jesus is after so much more than that. Um, so I'm going to kind of give you the punchline right here. I'm just going to give you the three things. So I, I went to school to be a teacher. Um, so teaching is kind of what I like to do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil the ending for you right now and tell you the three big ideas. But that will help you to grab onto them a little bit better. Uh, so the first one is, there's, there's kind of three things that God is doing. So the first one is that he's making his name great all over the world. Okay, number one. Number two, um, he's building his, his government uh, to establish the Great Commission on the earth and do lots of other stuff too, but he's establishing his government on the earth. And then the third one is that he is bringing his kingdom and justice on the earth um, and, and he's going to bring about the greatest movement of justice that the world has ever seen. Those are pretty big, epic things. But that's, God doesn't really do much that's not epic. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's going to be good. All right, so there's three passages we're going to look at. The first one is Malachi 1.11. The second one is Amos 9.11 and 12, which we read just a minute ago. And then the third one is um, uh, the beginning of Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow. So we're going to kind of look at these together, and I'll, and I'll do my best to, uh, to get us through these quickly. So this is where there's, gonna, there's a lot of scriptures we're going to look at. They're all going to be up here on the PowerPoint, so you, won't, you don't have to look them up if you don't want to. But there are going to be a lot that we're going to go through. And the reason for this, like I said, I'm, I'm a teacher at heart. I love to teach, and I'm really passionate about always showing people in the Word where it says it. I'm, I'm, I don't want anyone to leave here saying, well, this guy Justin came and talked to us, and Justin says blah, blah, blah. No, I want you to see where it says it on the page. So if, if you're like, wow, this is, this is something, this is good, this is something that God is doing, I want you to know where it says it and why it says it there. Does that make sense? So, so I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you, but it'll be okay. So just hang on. Okay. <laughs> All right, so the first one, Malachi 1.11. And so I'll read this for us. It says, My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. So just a couple of questions we're going to answer about this. One of the things I love about studying the Bible is just asking, just in asking simple questions and, th- and then answering them by what you see on the page in front of you, you can actually learn so much about what a passage says without needing to go to a commentary, without needing to go to seminary. Those are good things, but it's so accessible to all of us. And with the Holy Spirit's help, he's such a good teacher. Anybody can do this. Um, so we're just going to ask a couple questions here. So the first one in this passage, it talks about God's name. And uh, in, in 
pretty much everywhere in the world and in the Bible, pretty much everywhere outside of the Western world, whenever it set, talks about a name, it's not, it's not just what you call that person. Like, my name is Justin. There's a collection of syllables that people say, and whenever I hear this, I'm like, oh, somebody's talking to me. When it, when it talks about God's name, or really anywhere else in the world, someone's name, it is what you call them, but it's also it's a statement about their identity and about their character. Okay, and so pretty much all throughout the Bible, that this is anytime it talks about someone's name or when God is talking about his name, it's not just the collection of syllables that you call him by, but it's speaking about his character, his heart, who he is, what he's like. Um, and so, so it, when it talks about God's name, this is talking about who he is and what he's like. Okay? And then it says that his name is going to be made great. And this is pretty simple, but by made great, that means his name is going to be famous. It's going to be really well known. It's going to be really well loved. It's going to be, um, when I was thinking about this, thinking of things that are, that are a big deal in the world, like the Olympics were going on. I don't know if it was the, win- I think it was maybe the Winter Olympics or something was going on uh, earlier this year as I was studying this and thinking about how the Olympics is this internationally known event that happens. Like everybody knows about the Olympics or pretty much everybody knows about it. But God's name and his character will be more well-known than that. His, his character, his name, who he is, what he's like, is going to be the most well-known, the most well-loved, more than football, more than soccer, more than the Super Bowl, more than anything. His, his name is going to, so who he is and what he's like is going to be well-known and well-loved all over the world. Um, and then it says, in, in every place or um, among the nations, so this, this statement that's being made here is he's saying literally everywhere on the planet, his name, who he is and what he's like, it's going to be well-known, it's going to be well-loved. Um, and, and this may not sound like a, a super novel idea. You're like, okay, why, why, are we, why are we looking at this? Um, so here's, here's where this gets significant. So it says literally every, every place, it says in every place this is going to happen. Um, and it says two things are going to happen in every place. One is incense and the other is pure offerings. So incense in the Bible refers to worship and prayer. Um, you can see that in the book of Revelation and in other places. Whenever it talks about incense, it's talking about prayer. So people are going to talk to God all over the world. Um, but then it says pure offerings. And uh, when I was thinking about this, uh, thinking about an offering being pure and thinking about how um, God says that he loves a, a cheerful giver. He loves someone who's giving something willingly and joyfully. And... Um, and, and as I was thinking about that, thinking about, um, uh, thinking about like uh, an offering that's pure, someone giving something joyfully, and thinking of like, like a bride on her wedding day um, is giving herself to her, to her husband, uh, and she's literally, she's literally giving up everything. Like she's, she's forsaking all of her other options. She's giving, she's giving up everything. And in one sense, she's losing everything. But if you were to talk to a bride on her wedding day and be like, Wow, like this is kind of a kind of a hard day. You're you know giving up all this stuff, and you know you're losing. You're not going to be able to date anybody else, and you know like this is, you know I'm I'm sorry for your loss or you know something like that. We we'd be like that's that's ridiculous. And people will talk about like, well, my wedding day was like the happiest day of my life, right? And so this idea of of joyfully giving something, if we see something as worth it, it's not. It doesn't feel like a loss feels like you're gaining something. Like if you're getting something that you think is worth more than what you're giving to get it, you're like, I'm winning in this deal. I'm not losing. I'm, I'm gaining. And so basically what, what this passage is talking about is God is going to raise up people all over the planet 
who are going to talk to him literally in every place, every nation, every city in the world, this is going to happen. This is going to happen before Jesus comes back too because around his throne in Revelation, we see that there are people from every people group in the earth are there. So if they got there, that means they had to have loved Jesus before he came back. So, so anyways, it's got to it's work that way. This, this means this is going to happen before Jesus comes back. But there's going to be people that, don't, that aren't just willing to, like as a duty, talk with God or pray because they're supposed to, but they're going to be people who are in love with Jesus. The way that a bride is in love with her groom, who's like, I'm in. Like, th- th- it is such a joy to know you, to be in relationship with you. And, and that's what God is raising up all over the world. And, uh, and, and, there, and I think when we, when we hear about what, what Jesus is wanting from us or the level of devotion he's looking for from us, sometimes there can be the sense of like it feels like he's wanting to take something away from you. Um, and I think in, in just laying a foundation for where we're going with this, it's really important to know that everything that Jesus is looking to for you to give to him, the way he's looking for you to be devoted to him is the way that he is already devoted to you. So he's, he's talking about like people, you know, talking with him all the time, being, you know, devoted to him night and day and all this. And it's like, wow, that kind of seems intense. That seems like a little bit much. Um, but did you know that you already have unceasing devotion from Jesus? Whether or not he has unceasing devotion from you, y- you have unceasing devotion from Jesus already. And uh, in Psalm 139, it, it talks about this, and I'll just read a couple of verses from it. It says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And then later it talks about how, you know, we can't get away from God's Spirit no matter where we go. He's with us, right? And, it, and even later after that, it talks about how his thoughts about us are more numerous than the grains of sand on the seashore. And I guess we can, we can read this, and you can hear it as God is omniscient. He knows everything. That just kind of by default, like he has, you know, everything that Google could tell you just in his brain already. So he just by default knows everything about you. In which case, this doesn't sound super significant. You're like, well, yeah, God just kind of knows everything. Like, he just knows all the facts. But if, I think if we, if we take seriously the way that it says that, you know, God loves us so much that he would give up his son for us, and he loves us so much that he wants to adopt us into his family, and we read this from the standpoint of someone who loves someone else dearly, then all of a sudden it sounds really different. And that God thinks about us all the time because he's in love. Like, you know, when you're in love with someone, like, you just, you can't stop thinking about them. And, and even the mundane details of their life are fascinating to you. Like, it's kind of, in some ways, on the outside, it'd be like, why do you care about that? And you're like, well, it's that person, and I, and I love them. I'm just so taken with them. The, you know, their routine. I, I like thinking about their routine. I like, I like watching them. Like, parents love watching their children sleep. It's like, why? They're just laying there. Like, but, but, but we're like, no, like, I, I, I love it. I, I'm, I'm so, you know, I, 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 love, I love them. When it talks about God knowing what we say before we're going to say it, 
Like you actually have this with people that you're in close relationship with, close friends and family, where you, you know, you'll see something, you know, maybe you're watching a movie or maybe you're in some setting and you'll see something and you think of that person, you're like, oh, if they were here right now, they would laugh at this joke or they would, you know, they would think that this thing is awkward or, or, you know, they would, they would do whatever, or I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say this thing to them because I know they're going to laugh in response to it, or I know what they're going to say. Like one of my roommates hates tomatoes. Um, and so I'll tease him about it often. Like we'll be, you know, out, out eating somewhere. I'll be like, oh man, you forgot to get tomatoes on your thing. And he's like, oh, gross. And, and we'll like laugh about it. But there, there are things where I know what friends and family are going to say before they say it because I know them that well because I've been with them in those situations. And so that's the way that, that Jesus relates to us where he, he knows what you're going to say before you say it because he's that well acquainted with you. He's been with you every second, every step of the way. He's so interested in you. He's so in love with you. Does that make sense? So, so when, when God's talking about how his name is going to be great among the nations, how people are going to be obsessed with him and in love with him, it's not from this place of God wanting to, wanting to like take or something like that, but what we, actually, we all actually desire to be in relationship with someone who loves us that way. We desire to give ourselves to someone who's more taken with us than we are with them. We're like, yeah, of course I want that. And, and, and as we have an understanding of that that's how Jesus loves us, that's how he thinks about us, he's praying for us always. He lives to intercede for you. I could quote you know, verses after verses about how concerned he is with you, how interested he is in you. And as we see that, it kind of changes the way all these things sound. And that's where I'm like, God, I want to be your friend. Like, if this is how you feel about me, if you're really that interested in me, well, shoot, like, I want, I want to know you then. I want to give myself to you. I want to be in relationship with you more than anybody else. I, I love you too, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and, uh, and so basically, God is saying this is going to happen, and we know ultimately that Jesus is going to have a bride on the earth who loves him and loves him more than anything else and desires to be with him no matter what it costs. Um, and if we can skip ahead to that Revelation 1-7, 1-7 verse, it's a couple slides down, um, it says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Or another translation will say, even so come. There's that Christian Sandfield song, even so come. And basically it's this idea that like, Jesus, we want you back so bad. I don't care what it costs. I don't care what it looks like. If crazy things got to happen, I just want you back. So like, we're like, Jesus, I want you to come back. And he's like, it's, it's going to be good, but there's some, some bumpiness between here and there. We're like, I don't care. Even so, come. I, I got to have you. I, wa- I, I want to be with you. I can't bear the thought of living apart from you. So that's the, that's the first piece of what God is doing. Is he is he's raising up a people who understand how he loves them and who are in love with him like he's in love with them. That's, that's the beginning of all of this. And if that's the only thing that you get from today, like, that's, that's worth it right there. That's worth the price of admission. Um, but uh, <laughs> but in, in addition to that, though, so he's, he's going to have a bride who's going to partner with him to, um, to bring his kingdom in this age and to rule the universe with him in the age to come. And that sounds epic, but it's real. It's true. Um, we, we are the bride of Christ. It says that we are co-heirs with him. It says that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus. Like, as he's sitting on his throne ruling the universe, we're going to be ruling with him. I, mean, I don't know about you. Like, I'm not in charge of a whole lot. I don't rule a whole lot right now. But, but we're going to. And it's going to be cool. <laughs> and so the, the beginning of this process, though, um, 
is us having a right understanding of who Jesus is and, and what he's like and how he feels about us. So that's why we start here. And um, if we can skip ahead to that Matthew 16 passage. And um, Pastor Kevin told me you guys have been talking um, recently kind of about what the church is and, and stuff like that. And so there's this passage where um, uh, Jesus is asking his disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter says, you know, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God, all of that. And, um, and then in, uh, in verse 16, uh, no, verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so basically, um, the Jesus building his church it starts with a right understanding of who Jesus is. The, the beginning of it is not just being able to check the box that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Like, I could, I could take that test, you know, check the box, write it down, give mental assent to it. Okay, I know this is true, and then that's kind of the end of it. But it's actually as we, as we learn who Jesus is and what he's like, his authority, the way that he loves us, all the things that are true of him, as we understand who he is, this is the foundation that Jesus builds his church on. And the reason why this is the foundation is because Jesus is not looking for employees. He's not looking for servants. He's looking for friends and he's looking for a bride. And, and nobody's going to want to marry somebody. Nobody's going to give themselves to somebody who they don't think loves them. We're not going to join him in partnership if we don't understand how he feels about us. So that's, that's why this has got to come first. And so kind of the, our 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 way of partnering with this is we say yes to that process now and we ask for that now. We say, okay, Jesus, if my understanding how you feel about me is the first step of you building what you're going to build, then would you make your name great in me? Would you show me how good you are? Would you win my heart, win, win my emotions? I want to love you more than I love anything else. Not because I have to, not because I'm good at saying, no, I will not love other things because I love Jesus more. I'm like, no, God, I want to be fascinated with you. I want to be in love. So capture my heart. Capture my mind. Do that. And Jesus is just waiting for you to ask, and he will totally do that because he is so stinking interested in you. Like, you don't, you don't even know. Like, he likes you so much. It's ridiculous. Um, he likes you far more than I ever would. Um, <laughs> and, and, and not because you're not likable people. He's just, I mean, he's, he died for you already. Like, that's how invested he is. It's crazy how much he likes you. Okay, so that's that's the first part. He's he's winning the hearts and minds of all of the all of uh, of people all over the planet. So then the second part, this this government that he's building, this thing that he's building. So this is the passage that we just looked or that we looked at a little bit earlier that Pastor Kevin read. So Amos nine eleven and twelve talks about this thing that that Jesus is building. Um, so it says, "In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter." I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. So once again, I've got just a couple quick questions for us to answer to kind of give some context to this passage. So first it says, in that day. So depending on when when in that day is, this passage may be extremely relevant for us, may be completely irrelevant. So it matters when that day is. So anytime in the Bible when it talks about in that day or, or, you know, that type of language, it's talking about the time when Jesus comes back and the, and the time leading up until then. Okay? So like if there was, if you were looking at like a, 
like a kind of a timeline of like all of human history, there'd be a section in there labeled in that day and there'd be a little red dot and an arrow that says, you are here. Um, and so <laughs> so we, we are living in the time leading up to the return of Jesus. And I'll, and I'll show you a little bit more of this as we, as we get further here. But, um, but so this is talking about the, the time leading up to the return of Jesus. It actually began with Jesus' first coming. And from, from the time when Jesus showed up the first time, that's when in that day began. And that's continuing until he comes back the second time. There's, there's language in the epistles where they'll talk about how it's already the last days. And that was 2,000 years ago. They were talking about how it's already the last days. And I'm not making predictions about when Jesus is going to come back. I don't, I don't know when that will be. No one knows the day or the hour. But I know that that period of history called in that day, we are 2,000 years into it. So, you know, maybe it keeps going for a long time. I, I don't know. But I know that we're 2,000 years into in that day already. Okay, so this passage talking about in that day, seeing as we're in it and quite a ways into it, this is actually extremely relevant for us, and it will become in increasingly relevant every day that we go forward closer to the return of Jesus. Okay, because this is something that God is doing right now. He's doing this thing in that day. Okay, so in that day is talking about the generation leading up to the return of the Lord, or the period of time leading up to the return of the Lord. Um. And then it says that he's going to rebuild this thing. And depending on your translation, it could say the tabernacle of David, the tent, the shelter, the booth. You know, there, there are different ways that that word will get translated. But it's some type of a structure um, that he's talking about being rebuilt. Um, and, and ultimately, this is talking about Jesus being the, being the promised son that, that God promised David that he would have who's going to sit on his throne forever. This is ultimately talking about Jesus sitting on his father David's throne. Um, that, that's, that's ultimately kind of the, the, the fullness of that. But there's a lot of pieces of how that works. So the thing that, that, that God is establishing is he is establishing the lordship of Jesus and his government on the earth. Um, so another way of looking at this is... Uh, um, in, in Matthew 16, which we looked at just a minute ago, it talks about how Jesus is going to build this thing, and this thing is his government on the earth that's going to advance and conquer the work of the enemy. And then here in Amos, it talks about how um, God is going to rebuild the government of David, which is going to be ruled by David's you know, great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, um, and, and he's going to sit on David's throne. So actually, this, this thing, the tabernacle of David and the church, or the Greek word there is ekklesia, are all synonyms, I believe, for the same thing. This thing that God is building, establishing the, the government of Jesus on the earth. Um, and, and we will see the fullness of that when Jesus comes back and is physically sitting on the earth um, on a physical throne. Um, but, but for the last 2,000 years, this has been being built as the knowledge of who Jesus is has been being revealed to people. Okay, so that may feel like a lot, but that's, that's kind of what this, is, what this is all based around here. And so, like I said, this, this is ultimately talking about Jesus sitting on his father David's throne, but this is where it gets real relevant to this whole worship and prayer thing, is um, if, if, the, if the, kind of the, the government of David is what's going to be rebuilt. Like he could have said, I'm going to rebuild the, the government of Solomon or Hezekiah or, you know, Jehoshaphat. Or there, are, there are a lot of kings that he could have referenced. But he specifically said, I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle, the, the government of David. Then, then that means that, that it's not just about David sitting on the throne, but actually how, how did David do things when he was a king? How did his government work? Um, 
And so Jesus is the greater David, like he's the greater Moses, he's the greater, you know, everybody in the Old Testament. And so that means anything that that David did right, Jesus is going to do even more right. Does that make sense how that works? Okay. So there's something that David did that was kind of kind of crazy at the beginning of his rule. One of the first things that he did, and you guys are probably all familiar with this, he brought the ark into Jerusalem. But then what a lot of people don't know is he actually just, he set it up. So he took it out of the tabernacle of Moses, brought, which he left that in, in, uh, in Gibeon, I believe it is, Gibeon or Kiriath-Chirim or something like that. Anyways, he left, he left the rest of the tabernacle in that place and took the ark out of it, which is where God's manifest presence was on the earth, brought it into Jerusalem, basically in his backyard, and set it up in a tent there and commanded people to worship nonstop. And that continued for his entire life. And then um, as they built the temple, they, they brought the ark into the temple, and there were thousands of musicians who it was their full-time job to worship God with instruments, with music. And, and this, so this is a thing that David set up. And, um, and so we'll go to the uh, next passage in First Chronicles. So this, this right here may feel a little nuts and bolts-like right here, but this is, this is one of those things where I'm like, I want you to see this on the page and not just take it that, oh, Justin talked about this, and, and I felt really stirred, so I believe that it's true. I want you to see it on the page, that this isn't just a nice idea. This is actually a fact. This happened. So First um, uh, Chronicles 16, verse 1, it says, They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. So that whole story of them bringing the ark into Jerusalem, there's this big procession and stuff. They set it up, they offer offerings. Um, and then in verse 4, it says, He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and next to him in rank were Zechariah and then some other people. I won't try to say their names. <laughs> they were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. And Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priest, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. And this is something that if you've done like a read through the Bible in a year plan before, you've probably read this multiple times and kind of not thought a lot of it, especially because there's all these names that are hard to pronounce. And you're like, I don't know who that is. I don't care about that. As you just kind of read over it quickly. Um, but this is, this is really significant. This is, this is the spot where it talks about this. So right at the bottom there where it says regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God, the Hebrew word for regularly there, and, and I'll just let you know too, I'm not one of those people who's like when the English doesn't say what I want it to say, I'm like I better look at the Greek and the Hebrew and maybe I can kind of like get the Bible to say what I want it to. I actually have very little respect for that. Like I'm not, I'm, not that I don't have a, a respect for looking at the original languages, but like if you can't see it in the, in the English, I'm like, well then, you know, that's not fair if you need to, to know Greek or Hebrew. Like that means the bulk of the people in the world could never get this understanding. Like that, that can't be how this works. You know, like the, the really important things should be clearly there in the, in, in the English too, I think. Um, and so, so it says the word regularly there in the Hebrew is a word, it's, the word is tamid. Um, and that word, most of the time in the Bible, that word is usually translated to mean unceasing. And so some of the other examples of this, I, I was looking this up in a, in a Hebrew lexicon, and my mom is a kind of a, a self-taught Hebrew scholar. She's been studying it for the last 20 years and teaches Hebrew, and she's crazy smart. So I was, I was asking her about this, and we were looking at this, and, um, and the word tamid usually is translated to mean unceasing, and some of the other examples are like the fire on the altar is tamid, 
or the, the lampstand in God's presence is tamid. It's never supposed to go out. Or the bread of God's presence that was always supposed to be on the table um, in, the, in the tabernacle is always supposed to be there. It's tamid. David commanded the, these people to worship tamid. Okay? And, and, and if that wasn't enough, if we look at the sheer numbers, literally thousands that David paid to do this full time, like if it was just once or twice a day, like it can mean, so tamid can be translated to mean anything from regularly or daily up to unceasing. It usually means unceasing. But, but if, if we were, you know, looking at the, well, you know, maybe it just means regularly, you wouldn't pay 4,000 people as their full-time occupation to, to worship, just to just show up twice a day. Like you couldn't, I mean, like you couldn't even, I don't even know how many people you could physically pack in this room, maybe like two or 300 if we crammed them in like sardines. But if we, if we got bigger than that, like, they'd be, like, there'd be people, like, way, shoot, like, way across the street over there who wouldn't, you know, there'd be, there'd be no point in having that many to just show up once or twice a day. Like, and, th- and it also, if you look elsewhere in Chronicles, it talks about there being um, 24 groups of 12 that, that, would, that would take shifts. And so, so it's, pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Like, it, it actually, like, this is a thing that David did. David commanded people to worship around God's presence nonstop. Um, and where this is significant is David becomes king. The point where he becomes king, Israel's in a bad spot. They just got hardcore defeated by the Philistines. The previous king and his whole family got killed. There was a split. Um, the, the one descendant of Saul who didn't die was ruling most of the tribes. And then Judah aligned themselves with David. So there was kind of like civil war almost. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the priesthood had totally like fallen into disrepair. No one was seeking the Lord. Pretty much this was a really bad spot for Israel. David becomes king, and one of the first things he does, he doesn't try to, to build up the military first. He doesn't try to, there are all these other things that would seem more practical, more necessary. The first thing he does, bring the ark into Jerusalem and, and pay people a lot of money to worship God full time and put that right at the governmental center of the nation. So that, that was what David did. But then also, over the course of David's life, over the course of 33 years of him being king, they went from being in this really bad spot to being the dominant world power at the time, to being incredibly wealthy, having peace on every side with all of their enemies. And during this time, when they were worshiping, the book of Psalms was written. Most of the Psalms were written by those people worshiping God around the clock. And some of the most profound revelations about Jesus' first and second coming came from those people worshiping God. So much came out of this. So much came from that. Um, but even if those things didn't come from that, you know, even if I couldn't point to different practical awesome things that came from this, this is something that David did, and this is something that God's like, I'm going to raise that back up again. I'm gonna, the greater David is going to sit on his father David's throne. It's going to reestablish the government of David, and what that's going to look like is people, like the government is going to be built around worshiping God. People who are fascinated with Jesus, who are in love with him, who's, who's, who are like, oh my gosh, he is, he's awesome. I understand who he is. I understand how he feels about me. That's going to be at the center of Jesus's government. So, right, so for the last 2,000 years, this is a thing that Jesus has been building on the earth. As he's building his church, as he's building the tabernacle of David or the ecclesia, depending on what you want to call it, this is something he's been raising up as people who are, understand who Jesus is and are in love with him, and then people who are beginning to function as his government on the earth, who are functioning in a way to offensively 
um, conquer the gates of Hades, to conquer the work of the enemy through, through praying for God to bring his kingdom, through spreading the gospel, through um, having influence in the different spheres where we are. Um, this is a thing that God has been building and doing on the earth. And then the, the last piece of this Amos passage, it says, you know, I'm going to do all this so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Um, and this is where this gets like real practical too. Like even if you're like, I don't know about this worship and prayer thing, like, okay, you showed me some verses, but I, I don't know about this. This is kind of weird or this is kind of the first I've heard about it. Um, I don't know if I want to get on board with that. It talks about the, that the, all the nations that, um, that bear God's name being, being uh, possessed by, because of or somehow through this tabernacle of David thing. Um, and so in, in the book of Acts, this actually gets explained and so in Acts 15, there's a thing called the Jerusalem Council where the Gentiles are starting to get saved. God's pouring out his spirit on Gentiles. Prior to this, there were only Jewish Christians. And so they're like, what's going on? How, how do we make sense of this? And, um, and James gets up and he quotes this passage from Amos. Um, and so uh, uh, in uh, verse 13, he says, uh, brothers, he said, listen to me, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who will do these things. Things known from long ago. And so basically James is explaining that um, when God was giving this prophecy through Amos, that he was talking about calling a people for himself from all the nations of the world. And so we can, we can know that there's a connection between the Great Commission being fulfilled and the tabernacle of David being raised up. And I don't understand how all of that works exactly, but I do know that Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, and the thing he said to do is to pray. That, like he didn't say, so go to the nations or go tell people that, you know, that, you know, we need to work on evangelism or we need to, you know, stir people up about world missions or whatever. Like he, he actually didn't give any of those exhortations. The thing he said to do is he's like, ask my father to send people. That's what will fix it. There, there are people that need to know about me. Ask my father to send people to them. That's how this is going to happen. And so I think, uh, I don't know all of how this will work, but I know that um, as, as we pray, as we begin to function as this ecclesia, this tabernacle of David, this church that, um, that doesn't just mostly gather for a Sunday morning service, which isn't bad. Like, I love this, that we get to do this. This is so, so good. But knowing that this isn't the full extent of what God is, of what Jesus is building He's, he's building a people who, are, who, will, who will worship him and who will pray and will ask him to bring his kingdom on the earth, who will partner with him. Um, and, and just a quick testimony of how this works. Um, you guys have probably heard about the 1040 window. There's this area, it's, a lot of it is in the Middle East where the bulk of the unreached people groups in the world are. Many of them are Muslim nations. And um, about, I think, 20 or 30 years ago, um, people started kind of, people kind of realized, oh my gosh, all these people groups that aren't reached are in this one area, pretty much. We need to call people to pray for that area. So people started praying for what they call the 1040 window, which is where these nations are. And, and those are the, are the places where you hear the crazy stories of, like, different Muslim people having dreams and visions of Jesus all the time. Like crazy supernatural things happening where someone will be like, I've been having dreams of Jesus for the last seven months and they finally meet a missionary and they're like, oh my gosh, like, 
oh, I've been like, I've been seeing Jesus for the last seven months. Can you tell me about this guy? Like crazy things happen in the 1040 window. And the reason why is because for the last 20 or 30 years, people have been praying in a focused way for, you know, God, save, reach the people in the 1040 window, send missionaries there, open, open countries that are closed in places where we can't go yet, send dreams and visions, do whatever it takes. And God has been responding to the prayers of his people. And these people groups that are so hard to get to are being reached. And they're some of the, the even though they're hard for missionaries to get to, they're some of the places where we see the most fruitful advancing of the gospel is in those places. And that's been in response to that tabernacle of David, praying and doing what it is that Jesus said we were going to do. Um, okay, so that's that's uh, that's the second piece. And I'll hit this third one quickly. Um, so the third piece of this is, is how God has a kingdom and justice that he wants to bring on the earth. And, you know, depending on who you are, what your background is, what your, you know, what things you watch and care about. Um, justice, social justice is a thing that gets talked about a lot these days. Um, and, and most of the people, I feel like most of the noise about this gets made about non-Christians. It's not that, that Christians don't talk about this. It's just the, I feel like a lot of the, the noise that you'll hear in social media or in the news or whatever seems to be non-Christians talking about it. And there can be this idea that, oh my gosh, we need to do something about this. And Jesus actually is one in 100% agreement. He's like, actually, I was interested in this way before any of you guys were. This, is, this has actually been a real big priority for me for a long, long time. Okay, so this last thing we're going to look at is kind of what Jesus' plan is with that and how that connects to what we're, what we're talking about here. So in Luke 18, you guys are real familiar with this. This is the parable of the persistent widow. This is one of the other passages that talks about night and day worship and prayer. So check this out. Luke 18, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Um, hint right there. Always pray and not give up. Um, he said, In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, he will, find, will he find faith in the earth? So right now I have like an hour or two worth of stuff in me that I just like so desperately want to tell you about this because I'm so fired about, up about this, but I'm going to do it in less than five minutes. Uh, so, uh, so basically in this parable, why, why did Jesus tell this parable? Because he wanted people to always pray and not give up. And who are the main characters in this parable? There's an unjust judge and a widow. Who do they represent? Because that makes a big difference here. So the widow is us, and the unjust judge represents God. But we're not a widow, and God's not an unjust judge. So the way it works is these two things are actually the exact opposite of reality. Okay? So everything in the parable is the opposite of reality. So in the parable... The widow is begging the unjust judge, pleading with him for justice. In reality, God is incredibly just and is asking us to care about justice. He's like, will you please ask me for justice so I can do it? Will you please pray and not give up? 
Will you please care about this like I do? Will you cry out to me day and night so I can do this on the earth? It's, this, isn't, this isn't Jesus exhorting us to, to you know, keep pounding on heaven's door until God finally one day answers. No, no. Jesus is like, there are things I want to do on the earth and I can't do them until you ask. Will you please ask? It breaks my heart when I see the things going on on earth and, and I want to change them, but I won't do them until you ask. Will you please ask? Will you please care? Will you please cry out day and night so that these things can happen? Um, and, and so basically, just real fast how this works. As we pray, as we talk with God, that produces faith in us. As we see that God wants these things, that will, ins- that will stir faith in us that God is who he says he is. Um, and, and so then we'll be inspired to ask, and it'll change our hearts so that we'll actually want what he does. As we see God, who God is and what he's like, we get conformed into his image. Second uh, Chronicles 3 talks about, or Second Corinthians 3 talks about that. Um, but as we do this, this is going to produce a movement of justice on the earth, the greatest movement of justice we've ever seen. If all of God's people cry out day and night, and God quickly brings justice, is it possible for there to not be a ton of justice happening, like way bigger than we've ever seen before. It's not. So there's, there's going to be a movement of justice. As, as we do our part, there's going to be a movement of justice bigger than the world has ever seen before. Um, and, and the last piece of this is the ones who do the asking are going to be the ones who get to do the doing. Because Jesus' justice will start with you. It'll come at a cost to you first, which is the best. But no one will, a, apart from Jesus' love, we will never ask for justice apart from what is convenient for me. So the only, the only way that I'll be able to ask for and, and desire and walk out God's justice is if my heart has been changed through talking with him. So as God brings this movement of justice on the earth, the ones who have been doing the asking are going to be the ones doing the doing. Um, and that's just how it's going to work. And it's going to be awesome. Um, so, so just to review real fast, Jesus is going to have a bride who loves him like he loves her. He's making his name great in the earth. Um, second, he's these ones he's building into his government, his, his the government of Jesus on the earth, the church, the ecclesia, the tabernacle of David, um, and then these ones are going to cr- and that's how the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. We're gonna we're gonna pray for it. It's gonna happen, and then God's gonna bring a movement of justice on the earth like nothing we've ever seen before, and that's that's what God is doing. And so basically, I wanna I wanna invite you guys to be a part of that. What God is doing. This isn't just a House of Prayer East Lansing thing or a thing they're doing in Kansas City. This is all of God's people everywhere. Every church, every believer is part of this. And what he's doing here in Lansing is citywide. It's far bigger than what we will ever do in our little building there in East Lansing. Um, and so I want to encourage you, begin to ask God to make his name great in your heart. And then second, begin to function as the ecclesia, as the tabernacle of David. Not because you have to, but because you get to. Begin to ask God to bring his kingdom where you are, to bring it in our government here in the city and in the state. Begin, begin to pray individually, but then also begin to come to, to prayer meetings here at Capital City Vineyard, at the House of Prayer, at pretty much any church in the city. Start your own prayer meeting. Begin to talk with God about what he wants and ask him to bring his kingdom. Um, and God will do it in response to your prayers. Um, and, then, and then a last way you can do this too um, is... Uh, uh, it, it takes resources to make this happen. Like Kevin said, I'm, I'm a full-time missionary. And so if you're like, man, this is, this is awesome. This is really cool. I, I want to invest in that. Um, I've got a sign-up sheet up here. Um, I'd love to in- invite you to, to even just sign up for my monthly updates. I can kind of share with you about what's going on. Um, but also if you're interested in partnering with me or with the House of Prayer to help us do what we do, 
um, that would be sweet too. So I just want to put that out there. If you're, if you're stirred by this, if you feel like this is something that's important that God wants to do, um, this is how you can be a part of it. Um, yeah, so let me just pray for us real fast and then I'll, then I'll be done. Um, so Father, I ask that you would make your name great in us and in our city and in the world. Would you let your name be hallowed? Um, and God, we ask that you would bring your kingdom and your will um, here on earth as it is in heaven. God, would you, uh, yeah, would, would you show us the things that you want to do, God, your justice, bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Would you show us what these things are and, and help us to begin to function as your government so these things can come to pass on the earth. Amen.